The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar The Escape of Arsène Lupin Arsène Lupin had just finished his repast and taken from his pocket an excellent cigar with a gold band, which he was examining with unusual care when the door of his cell was opened. He had barely time to throw the cigar into the drawer and move away from the table. The guard entered. It was the hour for exercise. "'I was waiting for you, my dear boy,' exclaimed Lupin, in his accustomed good humor. They went out together. As soon as they had disappeared at a turn in the corridor, two men entered the cell and commenced a minute examination of it. One was Inspector Duzy, the other was Inspector Folenfant. They wished to verify their suspicion that Arsène Lupin was in communication with his accomplices outside of the prison. On the preceding evening, the Grand Journal had published these lines addressed to its court reporter. Monsieur, in a recent article you referred to me in most unjustifiable terms. Some days before the opening of my trial I will call you to account. Arsène Lupin. The handwriting was certainly that of Arsène Lupin. Consequently, he sent letters, and, no doubt, received letters. It was certain that he was preparing for that escape thus arrogantly announced by him. The situation had become intolerable. Acting in conjunction with the examining judge, the chief of the Sûreté, Monsieur Dudouy, had visited the prison and instructed the jailer in regard to the precautions necessary to ensure Lupin's safety. At the same time, he sent the two men to examine the prisoner's cell. They raised every stone, ransacked the bed, did everything customary in such a case, but they discovered nothing, and were about to abandon their investigation when the guard entered hastily and said, The drawer! Look in the table drawer! When I entered just now, he was closing it. They opened the drawer, and Duzy exclaimed, Ah, we have him this time. Folenfant stopped him. Wait a moment, the chief will want to make an inventory. This is a very choice cigar. Leave it there and notify the chief. Two minutes later, Monsieur Dudouis examined the contents of the drawer. First, he discovered a bundle of newspaper clippings relating to Arsène Lupin taken from the Argus de la Presse, then a tobacco box, a pipe, some paper called onion peel, and two books. He read the titles of the books. One was an English edition of Carlyle's Hero Worship. The other was a charming Elsevier in modern binding, the Manual of Epictetus, a German translation published at Leiden in 1634. On examining the books, he found that all the pages were underlined and annotated. Were they prepared as a code for correspondence, or did they simply express the studious character of the reader? Then he examined the tobacco box and the pipe. Finally, he took up the famous cigar with its gold band. Fichtre, he exclaimed. Our friend smokes a good cigar. It's a Henry Clay. With the mechanical action of an habitual smoker, he placed the cigar close to his ear and squeezed it to make it crack. Immediately, he uttered a cry of surprise. The cigar had yielded under the pressure of his fingers. He examined it more closely and quickly discovered something white between the leaves of tobacco. Delicately, with the aid of a pin, 
he withdrew a roll of very thin paper, scarcely larger than a toothpick. It was a letter. He unrolled it and found these words written in a feminine handwriting. The basket has taken the place of the others. Eight out of ten are ready. On pressing the outer foot, the plate goes downward. From twelve to sixteen every day, HP will wait. But where? Reply at once. Rest easy. Your friend is watching over you. Monsieur Dudouy reflected a moment, then said, It is quite clear. The basket, the eight compartments, from twelve to sixteen means from twelve to four o'clock. But this HP that will wait? HP must mean automobile. HP, horsepower, is the way they indicate strength of the motor. A 24 HP is an automobile of 24 horsepower. Then he rose and asked, Had the prisoner finished his breakfast? Yes. And, as he has not yet read the message, which is proved by the condition of the cigar, it is probable that he had just received it. How? In his food. Concealed in his bread. Or in a potato, perhaps. Impossible. His food was allowed to be brought in simply to trap him, but we have never found anything in it. We will look for Lupin's reply this evening. Detain him outside for a few minutes. I shall take this to the examining judge, and if he agrees with me, we will have the letter photographed at once, and in an hour you can replace the letter in the drawer in a cigar similar to this. The prisoner must have no cause for suspicion. It was not without a certain curiosity that Monsieur Dudouis returned to the prison in the evening accompanied by Inspector Dusey. Three empty plates were sitting on the stove in the corner. Has he eaten? Yes, replied the guard. Dusey, please cut that macaroni into very small pieces and open the bread roll. Nothing. No, chief. Monsieur Dudouis examined the plates, the fork, the spoon, and the knife, an ordinary knife with a rounded blade. He turned the handle to the left, then to the right. It yielded and unscrewed. The knife was hollow and served as a hiding place for a sheet of paper. Pah, he said. That is not very clever for a man like Arsène, but we mustn't lose any time. You, Juicy, go and search the restaurant. Then he read the note. I trust to you, H.P. will follow at a distance every day. I will go ahead. Au revoir, dear friend. At last, cried Monsieur Dudouis, rubbing his hands gleefully, I think we have the affair in our own hands. A little strategy on our part, and the escape will be a success, in so far as the arrest of his confederates are concerned. But if Arsène Lupin slips through your fingers, suggested the guard, we will have a sufficient number of men to prevent that. If, however, he displays too much cleverness... Ma foi, so much the worse for him. We will have a sufficient number of men to prevent that. If, however, he displays too much cleverness, ma foi, so much the worse for him. As to his band of robbers, since the chief refuses to speak, the others must. And as a matter of fact, Arsène Lupin had very little to say. For several months, Monsieur Jules Bouvier, the examining judge, had exerted himself in vain. The investigation had been reduced to a few uninteresting arguments between the judge and the advocate, Maître Danval, one of the leaders of the bar. From time to time, through courtesy, Arsène Lupin would speak, 
One day he said, Yes, Monsieur le Judge, I quite agree with you. The robbery of the Crédit Lyonnais, the theft in the Rue de Babylone, the issue of the counterfeit banknotes, the burglaries at the various chateaux, Arménil, Gouret, Imblevain, Groselet, Malachy. All my work, monsieur. I did it all. Then will you explain to me? It is useless. I confess everything in a lump, everything and even ten times more than you know nothing about. Wearied by his fruitless task, the judge had suspended his examinations, but he resumed them after the two intercepted messages were brought to his attention, and regularly at midday Arsène Lupin was taken from the prison to the depot in the prison van with a certain number of other prisoners. They returned about three or four o'clock. Now, one afternoon, this return trip was made under unusual conditions. The other prisoners not having been examined, it was decided to take back Arsène Lupin first, Thus he found himself alone in the vehicle. These prison vans, vulgarly called paniers à salade, or salad baskets, are divided lengthwise by a central corridor from which open ten compartments, five on either side. Each compartment is so arranged that the occupant must assume and retain a sitting posture, and consequently the five prisoners are seated one upon the other, and yet separated one from the other by partitions. A municipal guard, standing at one end, watches over the corridor. Arsène was placed in the third cell on the right, and the heavy vehicle started. He carefully calculated when they left the Quai de l'Horloge and when they passed the Palais de Justice. Then, about the center of the bridge, Saint-Michel, with his outer foot, that is to say his right foot, he pressed upon the metal plate that closed his cell. Immediately something clicked, and the metal plate moved he was able to ascertain that he was located between the two wheels. He waited, keeping a sharp lookout. The vehicle was proceeding slowly along the boulevard Saint-Michel. At the corner of Saint-Germain, it stopped. A truck horse had fallen. The traffic having been interrupted, a vast throng of fiacres and omnibuses had gathered there. Arsène Lupin looked out. Another prison van had stopped close to the one he occupied. He moved the plate still farther, put his foot on one of the spokes of the wheel, and leaped to the ground. A coachman saw him, roared with laughter, then tried to raise an outcry, but his voice was lost in the noise of the traffic that had commenced to move again. Moreover, Arsène Lupin was already far away. He had run for a few steps, but once upon the sidewalk, he turned and looked around. He seemed to scent the wind like a person who was uncertain which direction to take. Then, having decided, he put his hands in his pockets, and, with the careless air of an idle stroller, he proceeded up the boulevard. It was a warm, bright autumn day, and the cafés were full. He took a seat on the terrace of one of them. He ordered a bock and a package of cigarettes. He emptied his glass slowly, smoked one cigarette, and lit a second. Then he asked the waiter to send the proprietor to him. When the proprietor came... Arsène spoke to him in a voice loud enough to be heard by everyone. I regret to say, monsieur, I have forgotten my pocketbook. Perhaps on the strength of my name you will be pleased to give me credit for a few days. I am Arsène Lupin. The proprietor looked at him, thinking he was joking. But Arsène repeated, Lupin, prisoner at the Santé, but now a fugitive. I venture to assume that the name inspires you with perfect confidence in me? And he walked away, amidst shouts of laughter, whilst the proprietor stood amazed. Lupin strolled along the Rue Soufflot and turned into the Rue Saint-Jacques. 
He pursued his way slowly, smoking his cigarettes and looking into the shop windows. At the Boulevard du Port-Royal, he took his bearings, discovered where he was, and then walked in direction of the Rue de la Santé. The high, forbidding walls of the prison were now before him. He pulled his hat forward to shade his face. Then, approaching the sentinel, he asked, Is this the prison de la Santé? Yes. I wish to regain my cell. The van left me on the way, and I would not abuse... Now, young man, move along, quick, growled the sentinel. Pardon me, but I must pass through the gate. And if you prevent Arsène Lupin from entering the prison, it will cost you dear, my friend. Arsène Lupin, what are you talking about? I'm sorry I haven't a card with me, said Arsène, fumbling in his pockets. The sentinel eyed him from head to foot in astonishment. Then, without a word, he rang a bell. The iron gate was partly opened, and Arsène stepped inside. Almost immediately, he encountered the keeper of the prison gesticulating and feigning a violent anger. Arsène smiled and said, Come, monsieur, don't play that game with me. What, they take the precaution to carry me alone in the van, prepare a nice little obstruction, and imagine I am going to take to my heels and rejoin my friends? Well, and what about the twenty agents of the Sûreté who accompanied us on foot, in fiacres, and on bicycles? No, the arrangement did not please me. I should not have got away alive. Tell me, monsieur, did they count on that? He shrugged his shoulders and added, I beg of you, monsieur, not to worry about me. When I wish to escape, I shall not require any assistance. <laughs>